So when I got to the point where I was okay with me, then it was easy to share me and have conversations with people. But that took a long time. I was probably, you know, 30 years old before I was comfortable in, in an atmosphere that, that involved a lot of people that were relying on me. So that was, it was a struggle, but I think it, it paid off. Welcome to Audio Life, the podcast where we tell your story in your voice. I'm your host, Kafour Masood, and I'm joined by guest Michael Diamond. Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's exciting. Oh, glad to have you. Glad to have you on board. Now, Michael, you've had a very interesting life with adventure growing up in, in Chatham before living abroad in Mexico and then Arizona. You have a daughter and two stepkids, six grandkids. You've been a storyteller, quite literally, as an author and also an accomplished martial artist. And I hear these days you enjoy spending time on the golf course. We'll, we'll get into that. And, Not today. And more dur- <laughs> Not today. It's a little <laughs> <Maybe cold. laughs> We'll get into that and okay. much more during your audio life more today. Uh, but let me start by asking you, where were you born and is there a story behind your name? Well, that's a good question. I was born in Chatham, Ontario, Canada on the 15th of November, 1943. My grandparents, uh, my paternal grandparents came from uh, Bitterford, uh, North Devon in England. And uh, I can't recall, well, maybe my my mother's mother came from um, Epping, east of London. But my mother was born in Canada and my father born in Bitterford. I did some research uh, limited years ago on the name Diamond, and I didn't come up with much other than uh, I think my grandparents were in the transportation business in Biddeford, and when that sort of made some major changes, uh, they decided to emigrate to, uh, to Canada, I think in 1928. I can't think of anything significant that I found out about the name Diamond. It's common here in the, in the, in the, uh, the Americas, um, it's spelled differently, in some cases D-I, and certainly D-I-A, but uh, I don't know of anything significant about the name Diamond. No no worries. It's a very cool name, if I may add. Uh, Mike Diamond, you know, it sounds like one of those flashy names, uh, has a presence to it. Um, if I was to ask you, what, what are three words you would use to describe yourself? Now, only three words. Um, energetic. Um, I think fun, and as my sister would say to me from time to time, you were irritating. Um, <laughs> those quickly come to mind, and I and I don't look at any of them, certainly the irritating, negatively, um, because a number of friends of mine says, you're not irritating, you're just, you know, I don't know, just ex- ex- full of life, I guess, and uh, going all the time. I often find that the first words that come to mind are genuinely the the most honest and authentic. And I really liked your your three responses, you know, fun and energetic. We had a, a small brief before we started the podcast and I was already picking up that energy. And um, the third one, like you said, irritable, like it depends on your perspective, could be playful. You know, you like to, you like to tease, yes. you like yes. to have fun. So, and yes. it also shows a, a humbleness and, 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 uh, openness to, that that you would uh, you share that as well. So so thanks for that, Mike. Um, let's talk a little bit about your your childhood. What was it like 
growing up when you were young? I, I wrote the first book I wrote was called It's Just About Me. It was never intended to be that name, but uh, it was to be Flippin' Me, which was the nickname that my mother had for my sister. And and I wanted to write a story because I thought we were special and we, in fact, were not. Um, I thought that I, I wanted to write something about two, two, two young kids growing up in small town Canada post-war uh, without a father that that war had taken from them. So I think from an early age, um, knowing that my mother's life was totally destroyed when dad didn't come home from the war, um, I was sort of on my own. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I just, I, I made most of the decisions I made about my activities in my life from probably age seven on um, I made, uh, and, and I remember lots of times asking my mother to do stuff and she says, well, we can't, you'll have to wait and see or no. And I never accepted the word. No, I just went ahead and did my own thing. So my grandmother on my mother's side would say, I ran the streets as a young boy. And in fact, I did. And when I look back at some of the stuff that I was involved in, I'm surprised that I'm alive today, but, uh, I was had a very active, very busy youth. My sister on the other side of the coin sat at home and, and did mom and mom's bidding and grandma's bidding and really didn't do much beyond that. But uh, I was I was very active. And one of the one of the places that I hung out as a kid for years, right through to uh, teaching swimming lessons at the pools in that park um, was a small park just a few blocks from my house in Chatham where I spent my summers. And uh, it was so important to me that I wrote a novel about it. Wow, that sounds like an incredible childhood. And as you mentioned, so important to you that you felt like, you know, compelled to, to write about it. What are some of your fondest memories from your younger years? If you could just select maybe one or two that, that really had an impact or stuck out for you. Wow. I think it was the fact that I had, I had freedom. I had more freedom than a number of the kids that I hung out with. Freedom to explore, freedom to play. Uh, freedom to to probably hang out in places where I shouldn't, uh, with people that I shouldn't, going places where perhaps I shouldn't. Um, I, so I, I think I had I had more freedom than any of the kids that I hung with had, and I and I always said that's why I get that think I thought I was special is uh, there was three boys in particular that I hung around with in 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 Chatham who had a father in the family and I did not, and I always referred to the father as the louder no in the family. Uh, for things that the kid wanted to do or I wanted them to do. My mother would say no, and I would ignore or do the other stuff. These boys, if their mother said no and they decided to go, dad's louder no would keep them in the house. So I, I think um, I, I think freedom. That would be something that I had as a young, as a young boy um, that, that uh, I took advantage of, I guess, not knowing that uh, it could be dangerous from time to time. But it sounds incredibly fun, nevertheless. And um, it was fun. It was fun. I had a wonderful youth. Yeah, you know when you say about the louder no and so on, I also can can relate to that. And it's like, okay, I'll chance this, but maybe the parent says no, and then you go, okay, they really mean business. I'm not allowed to do that. But an yes. unrestricted, free childhood sounds amazing. Would you say that that freedom and that ability unrestricted influenced who you are today? perhaps? Oh, I think it had to. I think it had to. And I'm not knocking my sister, who I love dearly. She's 18 months older than me. Um, I, I think about what she didn't do. Um, like She was a homebody. She really, really didn't leave the area. 
had a couple of children and stayed there. I don't criticize her for doing that because I think people, there are some people that need to stay where they're, where they're at in order to create, keep foundations in those communities. And there also needs to be people like me that, that sort of ran the streets. I was very lucky to have had the opportunities to sort of do what I wanted when I wanted and, and that mm-hmm. was it. I just, I remember once, I, I don't know how old I was, probably it was still in, it was still in public school. And I was sort of dating a girl uh, in grade eight, more friends than dating. And, and I got to know her brother and they were from Toronto and they never liked Chatham. So one of the, one day he came to my place over on where I lived and knocked at the door and said, Hey, you want to go to Toronto? I said, yeah. So we just ran out the door, walked around the block to highway two and hitched like to Toronto. <laughs> Simple as that. You don't do that kind of stuff today. But in those days, you did. I hitchhiked a million places and you never even thought of it. You just went out to the road. You didn't have any money. Probably didn't have a hat or sunglasses or a jacket. Away you went. And that's what I did in many instances. I just did it. And it's things that you wouldn't do today, but we did then. So I had, I had a ton of freedom and a, a ton of freedom. And I had a couple of kids, a couple of boys that I knew that had similar freedoms, but not anywhere near what I had. Not, not quite to the same level. And, you know, that actually was my next no. question. I was going to ask, like, could you could you share an unforgettable adventure or a mischievous act from your younger days? Maybe something specific that, that you feel comfortable sharing with. But, you know, hitchhiking across to Toronto is, is an example. But maybe you have one off the top of your head that, that you recall that was particularly unforgettable or, or maybe a little bit mischievous. The one that's that's un- unforgettable, and I and I told that story in the first book I wrote. Um, it was it was it was the winter, maybe heading towards spring in March, and I lived by the River Thames in Chatham, and that was one of our play spots. And I had some friends that lived right on the bridge that crossed the river, uh, at least that in that part of the city. And one day we decided we were going to go skate on the river, so. Uh, myself and my friend and his two sisters went down to the to the river's edge, put our skates on, and skated the edge of the river west out of town, probably three or four miles, to where they were building a bridge that wasn't completed at that time. So we were skating and laughing and skating and laughing, and we got near the uh, near near the bridge. And every once in a while, when you were on the ice on the river in those days, the ice would settle and adjust, and you'd hear this crack and boom that would echo the length of the river. That was usually pretty scary, but when you understood what was happening, it really didn't bother you that much. But it's a few a few loud booms started to happen when we got close to the bridge. So we decided, and we saw that the ice had thinned out. Uh, we decided to go in. And, and, and go up on land. So I went up first or second, and then my friend went up, and then uh, the younger sister went up, and then the older sister started to come up, and then the, the ice gave way, and she went straight down into the ice-cold Thames River. But she managed to uh, claw her way to the edge, and we managed to get in the water a bit and grab her and pull her out. So I, I think if we hadn't have been there, or she'd have been another you know, 10, 10 steps, five steps behind us, she may have gone down and not come up. Then we, we spent the next, uh, you know, a few minutes trying to dry her out and, and come up with stories, which would have been lies, to tell her parents when we got back home. Because we had about, you know, a five-mile walk back into town, carrying her skates, her soaking wet, with icicles dripping off her nose. So that, that, that was, that was kind of scary, but adventurous all at the same time. There's a few other stories in, in the book that, that I can relate to. But that was one that always jumps up because it had the potential for a disaster, but we, we lucked out. Wow, that, that, 
that both sounds terrifying, but also unforgettable, as you say. I mean, right, the fact right. that it has a positive end, you know, you know, you were there for her, you were able to help her out. And I love the fact that you were thinking, okay, what are we going to tell our parents now? Walking back to town. So <laughs> That's exactly it. We had to come up with a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we told them that. the truth, we would probably all be in trouble. So we, we I, I don't know what they told. I don't know what they told the parents because I had nothing to do with it when we got home. I, I lived just across the street and down a bit, and I went home. Simple as that. <laughs> oh, great! And you know what? I've never experienced that—that that sound, the boom sound you talk about with the crack on on, yeah, on the, on yeah. the lake. It, it sounds truly chilling for me, especially somebody who doesn't understand. You know, this is a, a common effect with nature. I would just be thinking, okay, the, river, the ice the is river, breaking. Yeah. Falling. What am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you, you were quite courageous, I would say, at that age. Um, we're, we're a little bit silly. <laughs> I believe so. Um, just stepping on a little bit towards your career, you mentioned you know you've been writing and you're an author, and we'll touch on that a little bit. But I, I am curious, what was your first job, and how did you land it? Full time or part time? Either or, your choice. Well, I, I once I got when I was a kid. Once I got to the uh, to the age where you could sort of, I don't know, you were reasonably tall enough, strong enough, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. It was common in Chatham in the summertime to work um, in the fields, uh, whether you were picking cucumbers or tomatoes, um, or uh, working in the fields detasseling corn. That kind of stuff. That was probably my first jobs, and, and probably about the same age. I had two paper routes um, in in Chatham. I delivered the local news, Chatham News, and I also delivered the London Free Press at the time. So I had an early morning, early morning paper and a late after after dinner paper. In addition to, and that was most of the winter. In the summertime, I, I think the more exciting jobs were were the ones in the fields because you you could work two or three weeks. Maybe we make what was a lot of money then, $30, $40 to take back to school and you were a rich guy. So I, I think in terms of my first jobs would be in, working in the fields in the summertime around Chatham because that's that whole neck of the woods, this farm country, pure and simple. Beans, corn, tomatoes, got it all. And I guess it has a, a beautiful aspect to it as well, right? I mean, it's really out in nature. You're really connected to that. And just being outside, I guess, you know, in the summer you mentioned. So um, I'm not an expert on the geography there, but I imagine it, you know, beautiful, bright blue skies, you know, reasonably warm. Or, or is it cold as well that time of year? Now, that neck of the woods is around the Great Lakes in the summertime is hot and humid. Very humid. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so you know, that, that I can understand why, you know, that that sticks out. And, and, and one of your first part-time jobs... As you grew in your professional life, what were some of the challenges you, you faced? And you, you can select, um, you know, a different phase of your career, but maybe something that stuck out that you faced that you had to overcome. Um, I, I, th I think that the challenge that I had, and there's lots of reasons in my mind that, that supported that challenge, but I think the biggest challenge I had starting from a very young age was I really struggled to engage uh, in conversations and making friends as a kid. And that sort of went through high school 
and, and a bit into college. And it wasn't until I was out of college a few years um, that I really started to sort of get a grip on that. And I got a grip on that through some programs, leadership programs I was involved in over the years in, in the 1970s and early 80s. But I think I think the biggest struggle I had was engaging with people. Uh, and, and once I got into a conversation, being able to speak without tripping over my words on a regular basis. That was the, the biggest struggle for me as a kid and, and, and into adulthood. The example I come up with was it's either in grade seven or grade eight in McHugh School in Chatham. And and uh, I always, I sat at the back of the class because that's where they put me, not because I was stupid and not because I was an irritation because that's what they did with the students that were in irritation in class. They put them at the back. Um, and if you, and if you, knew the answers to every question the teacher asked and you sat in the front row and raised your hand to answer, then then you were part of the good crowd. But I, I couldn't do that either. I had to think long and hard about a, a question. And by the time I got the answer, it had already been answered. So what I started to do at, at a young age, even in high school, was make notes. At the end of the day, with some frustrations that I may have, may have felt and some comments I wanted to make but couldn't, I would write it out. It was like a, a diary, but not a diary, a journal. And I started to to keep one of those and I kept one of those and I still keep to today a journal. I, I'm not in it as much as I used to be, but I started making notes. And what I did after about 30 years, the second book I wrote called The Sale Needs to Win, there's a compilation of 30 years of notes that I wrote that I just uh, built on and, and, and published a book. So uh, I, that was that was my struggle as a kid, engaging, simple as that with with people. And I went into the people wow. business. So, I so uh, to tell you the truth, Michael, I would not have guessed that based on our conversation, our our, our limited conversation we've had today. It it does. It seems like it's effortless and with ease that you engage with other people. So that's really interesting. That that's something that you actually had to develop and work on from from yeah, child to adulthood. I had, I had so, to work on that very hard. I think I think wow. when it came to the point that. Uh, that I said, okay, this is you. Accept yourself as you are and go ahead. So when I got to the point where I was okay with me, then it was easy mm-hmm. to share me and have conversations with people. But that took a long time. I was probably, you know, 30 years old before I was comfortable in, in an atmosphere that, that involved a lot of people that were relying on me. So that was it was a struggle, but I think it, it paid off. I, th- I think that's a really insightful value there as well, because, you know, I have quite a few friends that are, um, they would classify themselves as very introverted and maybe a little bit socially awkward and so on. But one thing you mentioned there was getting comfortable in your own skin, accepting who you are, gave yeah. you the ability then to be able to express and share that more easily. So I think that's very insightful. Um, and certainly I, something I think that before I, that you're trying to be something you're not. Mm-hmm, and if you're mm-hmm. trying to be something you're not, you don't know how to do that because you're not it. But once you, you, you realized who or what you are and accept it, then it's easier to just, it's like telling a lie. If you never tell a lie, then you never have to try to remember what you said the last time you spoke. I, it, no matter how dumb it may sound, um, just tell them the way it is. Uh, it, it was a long time overcoming, but it worked. I say the same thing. The truth sets you free when you're just living authentically. Okay. It may not fit societal norms or it may not fit the situation you're in, but you're being truthful to yourself. And isn't, isn't that the most liberating experience you can have? Right. Well, it is. It is. Once you accept the fact that that's who you are, 
And I appreciate that, that in other people too. I, I want to see people as they are. Um, I, I don't want them to be behind some kind of a facade either. I can, I, I can deal with anybody, no matter how weird or horrible they are, if they come as themselves and, and try not to be something or not. So I can deal with that. Right. I, I, I think there's something refreshing about getting somebody direct that wears their heart on a sleeve. Whether you like them or you don't like them, it's like, okay, well, True. it is what it is, right? It doesn't have a mask. It doesn't yep. have a facade. Well, thank you for that. And we might touch a little a little bit about that a little later on about your personal okay. growth and philosophy because I, I think you have a lot of wisdom there to share. But I just want to you know finish up on your, um, a little bit about your career because – You've mentioned a few times here on the podcast about um, you know being an author and having some some books written, but could could you explain to me a little bit about the progression there? You you finished high school and you went to college. Was your major in relation to writing, or is that something that you transitioned to later? Could you give me a little bit about the steps and the time on how you 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 moved into writing and what made you passionate about it and how it all came about? Well, you know, long story short, and, and I can elaborate on it, but but I, I've said to people when they've asked me about writing, I just, I just had a head full of stuff I wanted to say. I had some stories I wanted to tell, the stories in my first book, the novel, the third book. I just had a story I wanted to tell. So that's that's what I did. Now, I, I think I stumbled into writing. Uh, the years that I spent at uh, that McHugh Park uh, as a kid in Chatham, and that's the sort of the focus of my third book. Um, that's where I spent my summers. And, uh, and, and right up to leaving in 1963 to go to college, the park, particularly the pools that I played in as a kid, I learned how to swim in. I learned how to guard in. I learned how to teach in. So I spent from the age of seven through to 19 in the parks and in the pools. And that's what I kind of wanted to do for a future, but I had no idea how to do that because there wasn't any post-secondary schooling that offered that then. In 1963, um, the government decided they wanted to put together a full-time academic program for people who wanted to work in the quote-unquote recreation field, because up to that point, it was in-service training only, post-war in-service training. Um, So they created this two-year diploma program at the University of Guelph, and if I hadn't seen the brochure on the desk of the person I worked for in Chatham, I would have never known about the program because I had no idea what I was going to do at the end of high school other than maybe do grade 13, which still existed then, and then go to university or uh, take a technical uh, position at, at a local college in Windsor to learn how to draw lines. Uh, so I found this brochure and I applied and uh, got an interview and got in. So in, in the fall of 63, I went off to Guelph. Um, and did that two-year program. And then from that point on, I was working in the not-for-profit sector in Toronto, boys and girls clubs. And then I went to, to a municipal position. And then I, that's what I did for the next 30 years. And I don't know, I don't know that that's what, in, it, that whole process encouraged me to write. I had never intended to become an author, as it were, because I don't think my writing is that good. But I had a story to tell. 
And I just had to write it uh, because that's what I wanted to do. And, and I knew then that any, any good writer that was successful didn't necessarily write as well as their books suggested because they all have wonderful editors. And that's what you've got to have as a writer because nobody can edit their own work when it gets beyond 10 or 15 pages. And you need, to, you need some different eyes to look at it. So uh, I decided I just had stuff in my head. My head was full of stuff because I ran the streets as a kid and I just wanted to talk about it. Certainly the third book, The Sale Needs the Wind, because I thought there's some stuff in there that represented how I thought and what I did. And there may be some people out there could have benefited from reading that. Now, whether they have and they have benefited, I do not know. But I never I never thought about being an author. Although, looking back to public school and high school, I never liked multiple choice questions on exams because that you you had to remember facts in order to that. I'd like narratives so that they asked a question where I could bullshit them, if you will, then I would talk and talk and write and write and write. And that's what I like to do on exams. And maybe that's uh, was the impetus behind my wanting to tell stories and, 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 and write books. I'm sure plenty of readers have gained insight and some wisdom. Hopefully I'm gonna check these out after our podcast as well today. Um, certainly, certainly excited to, 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 to read your first book as well. Cause I think there's going to be a, a ton of stories, um, from, from running the streets back in the day, um, <laughs> to stealing my friend's cat's car. Crazy. I, I was a little bit mischievous as well. So I hope to relate to some of these, uh, some of these tales, Michael. <laughs> Just a bunch of dumb stuff that, you know, 10-year-olds do. (laughs) And now for a word from our sponsors. Ready to share your stories and life philosophy? Or capture those of a parent or grandparent? Or maybe a corporate package is right for you to build connection across your workforce and add value to your clients. Visit audiolife.io today to learn more. Our listeners will get 10% off using discount code GIFT10 and order number Audiolife Podcast. Audio life, where memories find their voice. You know, it sounds to me that um, these experiences—they're always more fun when when you're when you're sharing them. And I imagine True. that you had you had some great friendships that shaped your journey. Could you expand a little bit about that? Yes, th- th- there were a, a number of of guys I hung around with, I guess, in Chatham. But once I left, that was gone. And people that I became close to at college, as a matter of fact, and I'm still very, very close with a couple of dear friends from college that I was with the other day that date back to 1963. But there was was three, four boys that I hung around with in my neighborhood. And, And it's difficult to describe the relationship. I think I sought out some friends that, would provide me with a little legitimacy, if you will. Um, I wasn't the leader. I was a follower. So if I found a friend that did some stuff or had some stuff that I could become a part of, then I felt like I was a part of something. Um, Cause I know if, if, if I had to do stuff that suggested I would say to guys, okay, let's go do this and, and, and we'll do this and this. I never could do that because I never could think of anything and say it the way I wanted to say it when I was with these guys. But if some of them made the dumbest suggestion, I'd be on board. And then maybe I could be a bit of a leader. Um, 
you know, because we would we would run east on the uh, the River Thames up the beach and then swim in, in the dirt, uh, you know, east of town, and on a couple of occasions almost drown. Um, and and as I said, I hitchhiked to Toronto. I went with another friend uh, up north. He needed to get a job, and I was still I had the summer off, so I went with him up north to sell magazines from door to door, and then. The local enforcement didn't like that. So after two or three days of that, I just hitchhiked back home. Um, but these guys, as much as anything, and, and I and I worked for a gentleman like this back in the 60s, what I learned from some from all of those guys, I guess, was what not to do in life as opposed to what to do. So if, if we hung out together and things were happening, then I would say, I might have done something, but I would say to myself, well, we shouldn't do that or I shouldn't do that. And I think that affected my decision-making later on in life where I can learn as much from somebody that has no leadership qualities that, that may say and do things that I don't agree with, but it's nice to know that maybe you shouldn't do all these things and, uh, and that, that may help you find a better way to do stuff. Um, I think the boys I hung around with in Chatham Probably they all had similar issues that I had, um, and that is engaging with others. And if someone came along that was keen to engage with you, then you just lobbed onto that friend and you never let them go. Um, and if they had something more than you did to offer you, you got involved with that too. So we all have friends in life that are hangers on. I think I was a bit of a hangers on. If I found somebody that would tolerate me, then, then they would be friends. And it didn't matter what we did probably or where we went, we became friends. And I had two or three of those in Chatham. And when I left, that whole notion, that whole idea, that whole way of thinking kind of went away. Um, and then I started to make friends with people that 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 had something meaningful to say and do. And, and I've stuck with them ever since as good, close friends. And then I made some good go, good friends in, in the career as in recreation that I'm still friends with back in Chatham. And as well in uh, Port Dover and Hamilton, very, very good friends that uh, I hope I never lose. I've lost some of them, but. Uh... I share something similar. You know, I grew up in Ireland and I had a lot of friends that we say ran about with, um, you yeah. know, hang out in the streets with. And, and they're, they're friends in that moment. And like you said, maybe when you leave, it, it becomes a little difficult to, or, or you've changed or, or their mindsets have changed. So I can completely get that. But I love that you have friends across uh, various places that you're still very uh, in touch with and close with. But is there a special person who has made a significant impact on your life? There's different life spaces. And, and in those different life spaces, there are people that play significant roles. I have a daughter who's... Um, recently turned 55. When I say 55, I have a daughter 55. I say, oh no, she, she's only five. She's just this big. Um, she played a significant role in my life simply because I think from an early age, she drove me nuts. And I still tell her that today because no matter what I say to her, she would ask a question as a result of it. And if I answered that, she would have another question. And if I answered that, she'd have a subsequent question. So she she asked questions regardless of what, what I would say to her. And uh, we've been close our whole life. So I think, although we didn't really live together, she was a focus for me and still is. Um, I think my sister is, as well, um, because she was the good angel and uh, I was the bad angel. So I think all the stuff that she that she was and did as a kid, I never wanted to do or be. And I think that was good because we were opposite sides of the same coin. 
And I think that was a good thing for me. And, and I think my current wife, who, who I've been with for since the mid eighties, and we got married, uh, in 2007 because we were leaving to go to America. And I don't think America believes in, in common law relationships. So in order for us to succeed down there, certainly when it came to healthcare, we should be married. So we got married in 07 and it was the best move I ever made um, because we'd already spent two years together in Mexico and working for the same company for a number of years. And when we had a chance to, uh, to, to head South to Tucson, it was just great. It was just great. So, She's been significant, she, very significant in my life because she doesn't pull any punches when it when it comes to to uh, pointing out some stuff about me that needs to be pointed out and perhaps needs to be resolved. Uh, so I think I think my current wife Mary, who is downstairs in this hotel in a meeting right now, um, it, is good. And that, and through her, I've met some wonderful people in the business she works. So it's it's just been it's just been a hell of a wonderful ride since the mid eighties and, uh, and, and I've enjoyed it very, very much. And, and, you know, you mentioned your daughter giving you a focus and perhaps the dynamic with your sister growing up as kids. I, I have to ask what has been your experience like, uh, raising children? My role raising my daughter was long distance because my first wife and I were, were separated and divorced early when Tanya was very, very young. But I remember when she was born, I looked at her and I said, I'm in love. And, and she was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And it, that's not changed. But I had to work very hard to keep that relationship going um, harder than somebody that may be living in the same house. And, and, I, th- and I think it's worked. And um, I think we've become much closer. And and I, and I know she said to me that the values I hold in my life, I got from you. Nobody else, I got them from you. So that uh, that makes you feel good as well. So I think different aspects of my life she affected and different aspects of my life that uh, m- my current wife um, affected. And of course, Mary has two growing kids as well, a uh, boy and a girl. And, and um, I've had a chance to influence them from the age of them being toddlers up and as much as they've influence my life. Just wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful people. I love that intergenerational exchange, you know, that you you both depart wisdom and you can also learn from as well. And and it's a it's a continuous uh, process uh, w- yes. w- with your loved ones. You've lived through various decades, um, witnessing historical events and changes. Which events had the most impact on you or things that really stuck out for you? The Second World War, in many respects, didn't stick out for me, but uh, that took my father from me, who I never knew anyway. Uh, so I think it's easier if you lose someone you've never known than someone you've had a life with and then lost. I think that's a that's a heavier burden to carry. But I think the results of that war um, in, in the, me having to be on my own or choosing to be on my own was a, a significant event. Um I don't think it affected us directly in Canada, but 9-11, I think, affected everybody in the world. And the thing also, the COVID uh, year or two was bad. And I think that that North America and the world, that was the first time they've had to deal. Well, it, North America, let's say Canada, United States, and something as impactful as that they had not dealt with since how they dealt with World War II. But it was a different challenge. And everybody was guessing. And everybody was criticizing everybody else's guesses, particularly we criticized the government, but they never faced this before either. And uh, in, in addition to facing that problem, they had to face the criticism that came from the street. So I think I think COVID 
9-11, World War II uh, were significant events that I think did affect my life. I think in a very, very general sense, it affected um, life in general. And you had to deal with that as it came your way. Absolutely. And I can certainly uh, say for 9-11 and, and uh, the COVID pandemic, they were, you know, global events. And I think they, oh, yeah. they affect, affected us all in, in, in different ways. How about, you know, a more general sense, societal or cultural shifts that may have changed that you have found most noteworthy? I, I don't know how this necessarily affects me directly, but I know that and, and, and I'm seeing it in Canada, too, and I don't want to get into politics, but uh, politics have become much more partisan than ever were before. I, I remember working in, well, 96, 97, I worked uh, as a uh, as a returning officer on a, in, in a poll at uh, an election here in, in Canada. And I remember people talking about elections earlier than that, where people would make a decision based on what they thought the person could do for them and their community. And they weren't thinking in terms of ideologies in those days. They said, well, this person said he's going to do this, or this person said they were going to do this, and it seemed they have in the past. So let's vote them in to, to represent our area. And it didn't matter if they were if Green Party, conservative, liberal, it didn't matter that at all. They had a job to do, and they were going to do it for that area. I don't see that today. I see people saying, well, they're conservatives. We want nothing to do with them. And I remember my grandmother saying this years and years ago as I was a kid when they came to election time. Well, I'm a conservative. We've always voted conservative, so I'm voted conservative. And I used to shake my head and said, I don't understand that. I couldn't explain it, but I don't understand it. Just because you've always, you're doing what you've always done, you're probably just going to get what you've always got. And in some questions, that's not a hell of a lot. So I think that shift to partisan politics, where if you're not on my side of the fence, I don't want anything to do with you, has affected all of us. Uh, in, in every aspect of community, because a lot of communities rely on funding. So from upper levels of government, and I think that does affect it a bit. And this this isn't necessarily big either, but I, I see it too. And in, in when I read and listen, um, there's more people that don't go to church now than there was 50 years ago. And I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. I don't know whether they've just decided to find out you know, about religions, et cetera, whether God exists or doesn't exist. Um, and it made some decisions on their own. But I, I, I think people have pulled away from what I consider a community group. And that is the church community group is a religion, the same as the kinsmen and the rotary. Um, it, but they all do something good for their community, for their individuals. I just think people are drawing away from the, to some degree from the, I guess the, the three big monotheisms in, in, in society and, and, and sort, of, sort of being on their own in a religious context. One other thing that's maybe small, if, if, if I got in trouble at, at school when I was a kid, then that was my fault. And if, I got, and if I got to telling my mother that I was in trouble at school, she would want to know what I did. And if I did something that I probably shouldn't have done, then I was on the bad side of her too. Um, I see a lot less of that today. I see if somebody gets in trouble at school, then it's the parent, and it's the teacher's fault. If you try to tell a parent that your kid's bad, they're not going to buy that. Uh, so I'm thinking that the educational system is really facing a huge challenge today, and and I think that I think that does affect some parents and their decisions around their participation in the educational system, and sometimes too much 
participation on the part of parents isn't necessarily good, but I think participation on the part of parents is very important to 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 understand where their kids are going. Now, I know my sister and I didn't have a lot of that um, when we were young, because I think when my dad didn't come home from the war, it sort of killed my mom and, and we were sort of on our own. In other words, uh, you know, some examples are nobody ever read to us as kids. Nobody ever asked how school went today. Uh, can I help you with your homework? Are you doing anything exciting? That never happened in our lives. Not at all. And I think that's, um, I, th- I, th- I think that uh, that had a bit to do with my inability to be able to engage in conversations with kids and make friends. But hey, whatever, whatever. And that just, that just reminds me, I, I've had another uh, manuscript in the drawer, as it were. Um, I, 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 I kind of think that every boy out there not every boy, but lots of boys all over the world had a girl next door and every girl had a boy next door. And I know where I lived, there was a girl next door that wouldn't look at me. She was a bit of a friend to my sister because she was a little bit older, but she wouldn't pay any attention to me. And so I decided I wanted to write a book about the girl next door who wouldn't look at me and then try to figure out a way to get her to even acknowledge my existence. So, uh, well, certainly I'm a guy who can relate to, um, <laughs> having a girl next door that didn't know I existed. So, uh, so um, but uh, one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think all guys can relate to that um, that element as well to some degree. If you like what you heard today, consider recording your own audio life private podcast or giving one to a loved one for a unique and memorable gift. Today, audio life listeners will receive ten percent off using discount code GIFT ten and order number audio life podcast. Also, remember to rate our show and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.